Hi, this is Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And for the podcast today, we're very excited to be joined by City Council Member Joe Borelli. Thanks for sitting down with us. I'm happy you guys are here. <laughs> I really am. Uh, and I should say at the top that at least two of the three of us sitting around this table either have allergies or a little cold or something. So excuse the voices or the coughing or whatever might come through. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's, it's good to sit with you. Uh, you obviously are... Uh, really involved in politics from the local to the national level and, and very interested to hear some of your thoughts on what's going on. But first, for those who aren't too familiar with you, who are you? Where are you from? Uh, how'd you get here? Sure. So I'm, I'm Joe Borelli. I'm the councilman from the southernmost district in the state of New York. Uh, I was a state assembly member for three years prior to coming to the council. Um, and I got involved with politics when I was in high school. I started the usual internships and, and things like that and got involved. I had, I, had, I guess, my Rummerspringer years in college, uh, and then uh, when I graduated, I came home and um, just got involved with the local party and, and uh, running for office with, with uh, a friend of mine was running for office, and I got involved in his race, and he won. Yeah. And Here I am. What's your district life, people who haven't visited? I bass fish. I mountain bike. I, um, my biggest problem is a lack of sidewalks, not because they're broken, because they just, they're just woods and trees. Um, you know, the, and those are all positive things. Um, we have we do have the most acreage of parkland as a percentage. Um, we have the Fresh Hills landfill. We have uh, uh, Brookfield Park, which is a former landfill that's been converted. Um, mostly R three two zoning and less. So uh, townhouses are considered a high density uh, area <laughs> in, in, in a neighborhood in, 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 my, in my area. Um, I, I personally completed my dream in life because I grew up in, in, a, in a duplex and then I, the first house I bought was like a, uh, on a row of townhouses. So in June, it would be two years actually, June 1st, but my wife and I, we bought our house where we can walk 360 <laughs> degrees around it. Like, like, like I did the meets and bounds of my property and I yeah. felt like a conquering hero, <laughs> so it was good. Does your district feel like, uh, given what you described, it's very different from you know, my neighborhood in the North sure. Central Bronx. Do you feel like you're part of the city? Uh, yeah, I mean, but I think politically the, the island is much more, uh, uh, I guess metaphorically speaking, it's much more similar to the rest of the country than the rest of the city, certainly. But if you look at urban areas throughout the country, if you look at cities that would consider themselves large cities over, over a half million people, let's say, or even mid-sized cities, most of those cities actually look like Staten Island and not the uber high-density uh, downtowns of Brooklyn, Manhattan, Chicago. Um, you look, look at LA. It's the second biggest city in America, and there's a lot of one-family houses and garden apartments and that sort of thing. Who lives in your district? You know, how do you describe? I mean, obviously, well, I do. Thankfully, on the record, let me. I want viewers to know that. Let's do we have proof? Of, do you have proof yeah. of your title with you? Um, but how do you describe your constituents? You know, what's so, the district look like in that way? It's a good question. Um, Thank it, you. It's it's a wave of of uh, emigration from the other boroughs. You know, there there are not too many. Uh, even the first Staten Islander uh, was this guy Cornelius Mellon, and he was a Manhattan guy who just moved over to Staten Island for greener pastures. So since 1641, we've been just people that have been leaving Manhattan uh, and to a, a larger extent later, uh, you know, Brooklyn, and, and going to Manhattan. And the, the generation that populated the South Shore was predominantly uh, Italian-American immigrants, uh, second generation typically. Um, and now we see that as the populations are moving in Brooklyn, those people are moving to Staten Island. So now we have, uh, it's, it's still, for lack of a better word, it's still, it's still the least diverse or, or most white district probably in the city. 
Uh, that, that might not be factually accurate, but I think it is. But we are seeing more uh, uh, Asian Americans, um, specifically Chinese, leaving uh, the, the Brooklyn Chinatown. Uh, and we see a lot of uh, Russian uh, Russian speakers, whether Ukrainian or, or Russian, or Belarusian, or whatever. And those are, those are folks buying houses, buying houses and, yeah. and moving into... Yeah, Europe. I mean, they, they either A, uh, can't afford to buy a house in Brooklyn, or B, are cash rich from owning their house in Brooklyn and just want to, you know, want better schools, better parks, and stuff like that. And you have a lot of families who've been there generations, though, right? It's, it is... Or is that not... Yeah, accurate? I mean, I mean the, 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 the loss of population in Staten Island is to New Jersey, which is, which is an interesting dynamic, and I, and I try to remind people that uh, when they talk about, um, you know, the, the criticism of Governor Cuomo is that people are fleeing the state to, uh, to lower tax jurisdictions. In hindsight, or, or in, in, not in hindsight, but, but in, in comparison, Staten Islanders actually flee to go to higher tax jurisdictions in New Jersey, which is a fun fact. And that's why I think the, the, the issue for Staten Islanders is the direction of local government. And, that, and that's why I'm actually a proponent of, of secession. Because I don't believe it's it's a it's just a cost benefit analysis. It is a a uh, it, it is a, 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 a seeking of, of a devolved government where the the town executive, whatever the title may be, is more responsive to that town, whether it's freehold or Westfield or whatever it is. So what type of stuff are we talking? So so what would make folks from your Southern Staten Island district leave for New Jersey when you say it's not, they're actually going to pay higher taxes yeah. possibly. So what are those issues? <coughs> well, well, I mean, so, so just start with the tax issue, right? So the, the, it used to be a very disparate difference between the, the taxes you'd pay in New Jersey and the taxes you pay in New York. With property taxes creeping up ever since uh, Bloomberg's tax reform in like 2002 or so, um, the, 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 you know, the Joe Schmo who gets the real estate listing book in the supermarket, the, the stretch for the property taxes isn't that much bigger anymore. So that has shrunk. And for the most part, you lose your city income tax. Um, you know, if you work in Manhattan, you still obviously pay something. So, so the, the tax issue is, is an issue, for, for lack of a better word. But it's also, um, you know, if you just go geographically due west from, from Staten Island, it's faster to get to Manhattan from New Jersey than, than Staten Island. If you want to keep your same commute, you can go 10 minutes further south and have a huge house. My in-laws live in a town called Homedale. It's right where PNC Art Center is. Um, so just to give you an idea of the area. But you know their commute to Manhattan is probably the same to, as mine. And they pay similar monthly nut, let's say, when you're talking about your taxes and your mortgage. And they have like an acre of property. And, and it's just it, you know, it's, it's a nice place to live. Mm -hmm. Less crime. Um, Schools in Jersey are very good. Uh, of course, there's there's a school district shopping when, when you're buying a house. Um, some of them aren't so good. Um, you know, th there's also the the lack of traffic. Um, the infrastructure is actually better again with NJT. I mean, we always hear horror stories about NJT, you know, breaking down and stuff like that. But it's it's still a pretty good system. So, what are some of the things that your constituents care about? What are the top issues locally that you are working on. I mean, you're very interesting because you, uh, you know, pay attention to state politics. You write about state politics sometimes. You're, you know, sort of a prolific op-ed writer, and you obviously have been a major supporter of the president. Um, but you obviously also have local issues to worry about. What are what are some of the things other than a couple that you just hit on that your constituents sure. are worried about? Uh, tra traffic is number one. Um, and, you know, the, the sad reality that you face as an elected, and, and I see this every time there's an election cycle because I see the new Staten Island candidate 
you know, talking about these big issues. Uh, and then when you get someone who understands science and how boats work and, and you talk about, you bring up the word bathymetry, which is my favorite word, because it's so important to ferry studies and no one understands it. And then, you, you know, you, so the, the follow-up question is, what about the bathymetry in the South Shore? And, oh, I don't know. But, you know, th there's, there's literally no magic wand for the traffic problem. Um, you know, we, we, are, we suffer from geography, that, that we are too far away to have a direct link with Manhattan. So we are required to go through either Brooklyn or through New Jersey. Um, the incentive, you know, we, we have a great relationship with, with the Port Authority. Right? They, at my urging, they've begun the process of, of rebuilding the Gothels Bridge, uh, the Outer Bridge. They're finishing the Gothels Bridge. But like in the New Jersey Turnpike Authority has no accountability to Staten Island, so they're, they're, not, they're not too eager at you know, rejiggering re the, the exits and entrance that Staten Islanders use on the Turnpike. Um, so those are some problems. The, the Lincoln Tunnel, the Holland Tunnel, those are big issues for us, as are the Battery Tunnel. Um, congestion pricing, Staten Islanders don't like the idea, but if it involves tolling East River bridges and everyone's paying a fair toll, and now uh, it's not like, you know, it's not a madhouse to take the Brooklyn Bridge or so, it might be, it might be something that we would support. Um, you know, you didn't come out one way or the other on things that were being discussed. No, because you know, it, if you remember the, the Bloomberg negotiations for congestion pricing, it was it was a what what goodies could I give you in exchange for your vote? I mean, B Bloomberg has this reputation, but he was one of the most transactional politicians that we, we've ever had. I mean, and, and he got a lot done because of it, right? I mean, that's that's just the nature of raw politics. Um, but the 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 goodies for Staten Island didn't equal the the jump in cost for drivers. Like, you know, there still wasn't a good reason for Staten Islanders to leave their cars. Um, we're trying to build park and rides. You know, um, the MTA express buses have not been, the routes haven't been updated since 1968. And Staten Island's culture has changed, just like it has changed everywhere else, where people used to have one car per household, so the bus on its local side, on the Staten Island side, would have to do the grand tour of a couple of neighborhoods. You know, now people would prefer to just get in their own car, drive a mile to the park and ride, and then have a quicker commute. So we're trying to adjust, you know, to, to, to meet those needs. Um, of course, opioid pro problem is, is a real problem on Staten Island. I mean, it's, uh, it, it, we were better in 2017 than we were in 2016 in terms of deaths. That's in large part because of the amount of fentanyl was, was less. Uh, and I think our DA, who's a Democrat, I think he does a good job in actually following up on some of the overdose cases and trying to work the cases back to who dealt the drugs. I mean, it's, it's, um, it, it's something that shocks me that um, that's a tool that's not employed more often, especially when you have parents that would easily consent to their child's phone being given over to the prosecutor. So. How about um, Superstorm Standy and recovery from that? Uh, I know obviously yeah. the areas north, north, north on Staten Island that were, are basically being evacuated. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about recovery and also like resiliency measures. Do you feel like you're so, protective yeah, enough? We, we have a, a major resiliency project coming to Tottenville. So a, a, as far as my district goes, the only part that was really affected was Tottenville. Uh, which is the, very tip. Which is very tip. And there was a number of, of deaths there. Um, and, you know, the, the governor's uh, office of storm recovery has this project. The project is a good thing. But you, you're talking about it probably not being done until after 10 years after the storm. And that's why it just, I, it just gets under my skin when I, I hear the governor pontificating about the response uh, in Puerto Rico when, if you recall, like just the fallout from LIPA on another island that has about 2 million, 3 million people, 
right? Uh, you know, they, they pretty much dissolved the light bulb because it was so inefficient in restoring power to Long Island. Governor forgets that, but you know, when it's an opportunity to attack uh, Trump or to in, insert himself on the national stage, he, he obviously uses it. And you have been outspoken on the need to reform the property tax system. For folks unfamiliar, this seems like something, I mean, the mayor obviously keeps kicking this can down the road, but he seems to be saying he's going to form a commission soon. Um, capture, you know, sort of in, in brief, or as long as you want to talk about it, you know, what do you, what do you propose doing about the inequities in the property? So, taxes? I mean, I have a resolution now uh, that uh, Council Member Drum, the finance chair, is, is looking at. There's about 13 or 14 sponsors on it. Because uh, the, the truth is, and I'm going to put this back on you guys as journalists, you guys put the bullseye on Mayor de Blasio for property tax reform, and I've mistakenly done that in the past too because he's sort of tried to take some issue ownership. And in 1981 or 80, when the new system was enacted, it was done with a combination of city and state uh, legislators. The state legislature could change property taxes tomorrow. We don't need, we don't need anything in the city. Um, you know, the, the state legislature is where whatever, you know, Senate bill, whatever it was in 1981 was passed. It is a function of, real property tax law is a function of state law. Codified in that state law are separate rules for cities over a million people, which is the traditional Albany way of saying New York City. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I'm asking for is to re reform this one particular part, real property 1805, you know, don't quote me on this, listeners, mm -hmm. but uh, it's, it, it's what governs when the property tax cap that exists in New York City gets reset. Um, right now, it gets reset if you knock down 50% of a house and rebuild it, if you expand the house, if you knock down a house or, or you, you build a, a new house on a new lot, or the zoning changes, now you can put a higher up, whatever, whatever the ch major changes. It doesn't change when Joe Schmo sells it to Mary Jones. And if that happened, you would have, um, within three or four years, a, a, an equalizing, e equalizing effect, rather, uh, in the hotter real estate markets, um, specifically you know, in Brownstone, Brooklyn, uh, and a few in Manhattan. I mean, there's just not many Class One properties in, in Manhattan. Uh, but the, the the idea that someone could just plop down and, and I mean, who who's buying these these houses? I mean, a lot of times it's foreigners who are see this as an unbelievable real estate investment, um, right? There's not many places you could plop down a, a chunk of money, have your capital grow, uh, and not pay any taxes on the money while it's it's, it's generating income as rent. So people buy a two million, three million dollar brownstone. And they're paying taxes that are less than someone who bought a house for six hundred thousand dollars in Queens. Like it's absurd. Um, the the purpose of this existing tax cap was to keep you know the Mrs. McGillicuddy's of the world in their house while their neighborhood uh, developed around them. Um, but when gentrifiers move in, and there should be no difference when someone's buying a million dollar property, whether it be in neighborhood X or neighborhood Y. And that that's the system we have. This is the de Blasio loophole. This is why Bill de Blasio pays less. Um, the de Blasio loophole could be ended tomorrow if the state legislature voted on it. Uh, I believe with my resolution passing, which would allow the council member to support, that would be enough to be the home rule, rule message. Like that would, that would signify it would easily get it. And then it would just be a matter of DOF uh, within their system. Just it, it's, it's computerized. It's just linking with, they do it now, just linking with uh, the other system that records a, an arm's length transaction. Um, <clears throat> I mean, that would, over a couple of years, number one, raise revenue and equalize properties. And it would still keep the tax cap for the people who... So Bill de Blasio should be protected under the tax cap from the day he bought his house. And that, that's, that's what's fair. <clears throat> one of the reasons that I think people, not to make excuses, are reluctant to open up the hood of property taxes is that it's so hard to avoid creating 
um, as many losers as there are winners. And one reason for that is there's, there's two dimensions of inequality, right? There's the one you've talked about, which is between different homeowners, like de Blasio plays less in poverty tax than I do. Uh, you know, he lives where he lives and I live where I live. But also between multifamily buildings and, and single homeowners. Sure. And landlords say that they pay an, an excess amount of tax. And so if you really want to make the system equal, it's not just equalizing homeowners, but equalizing homeowners with multifamily. Do you feel like yeah, that's I mean, equally important? How would you... And, and, I, and I, I believe the, the Martha Stark notion uh, of how condos and co-ops factor in onto all this. Um, but, but if you look at the problem from its source, property taxes used to be an ad valorem tax, regardless of tax caps, etc. They are no longer an ad valorem tax because they have almost no bearing on the actual value of someone's property. Um, you know, that's what has to change. The change, though, that I mentioned does not require a full opening of the can of worms because you're just changing two or three words in an existing law that would just allow our Department of Finance to reset these caps at those moments. This would result in revenue raise. Like, this isn't, we're not going to cost anybody money. So you would think this is something that, I mean, this certainly got Dan Drum's ears, you know, you know, you know all, all randy. Um, but you think the de Blasio administration would jump on board this, too. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It, it is actually, it is not the solution for all. But it is a pretty perfect solution for a small problem amongst others in the property tax system. So, uh, sorry, you mentioned uh, crime before is one of the reasons people were maybe fleeing Staten Island for. No, no, for no, I mean, you know, you, you, Staten Island would be the safest large city in America uh, if it was a city of over five hundred. You know, of all the cities, over five hundred thousand people, let's say. Um, it, it's it's more a question of the types of crimes and the extremely safe parts of New Jersey. Mm -hmm. You know. Relevant to that, though, you know, the, the conversation in the city about law enforcement over the past several years, um, policing, um, you know, how aggressive the police can be, what kind of tactics they can use. Uh, how satisfied are you with that? I mean, do you feel like the city is in a, in a good place? Crime is low. There's less stop and frisk. Are there problems we're not seeing? What do you think no, I mean, I, is I, handling I, I, criminal I, justice? I, I think, Jared, you, you nailed two really good points. That the problems of stop and frisk have diminished. I mean, Bill Bratton was just, not to plug another uh, audio uh, program, <laughs> but Bill Blatton, Bratton was just on another program uh, talking about how... You can say it. Yeah, no, he's on him <laughs> said He's talking about He's been how, trying to get on this one, but we've right, we <laughs> we got pushing away. lined up. Yeah. Away. But, you know, he, he talked even about how, how great of a job, I mean, in a sense, he was doing, right, where he lowered stop and frisk, and they really targeted the, the few thousands of people they really believed would be committing crimes. And as a result, crime continued to stay low, and the, just the, 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 you know, almost warehousing of stop and frisk paperwork is just no longer there. Uh, and that's a good thing. I mean, no, I mean, most cops I speak to are my, my beer buddies, and, like, you know, like, they, they don't, they don't want to just stop it. Like, it just, number one, nobody wants to do more work than they have to do. Number two, nobody wants to do more work than, than, that, than actually w would result in some type of thing, right? If every time they were stopping something, it was getting, you were getting, you know, a gun, collar, you know, then I think the story would be different, right? But how many stops actually resulted in some real criminal prosecution? Uh, and, and, and I think that's where even the amount of stop and frisks uh, w was lost on the police officers that were kind of educated in the, in the academy thinking that this was a panacea. So on, related to that, and, and you mentioned, you know, working with Councilmember Drum, who's a Democrat, obviously, you're one of three Republicans in the 51-seat city council. Talk a little bit about what that means and how you try to get anything done that you want to get done. And do you just sort of 
acknowledge that since, you know, there's really not a lot you can do to stop some of the things that a Democratic mayor sure. and Democratic city council want to do that you just sort of have to let them kind of do what they're going to do? Excuse me. Um, no, you know, I, I think there is um, there's a relationship now with Corey as speaker that existed when there was a speaker named Christine Quinn. Uh, and I think a lot of us uh, have, have, have sort of Melissa Mark of the Tunnel Vision where there was a political agenda that the council set and anything that didn't go along with that agenda, it just was put by the wayside. Um, you know, you just don't, you don't see that with, with Corey. Um, and, and, and this is, I'm saying this even after he, you know, just came out for a safe injection facility, something which, which I, you know, we could talk about that too, but I, but I oppose it. Um, there's a, a level of communication between he and members that don't necessarily agree with him on a lot of things that we just didn't see with Melissa. And he's very open to, um, you know, text messages or phone conversations. And, you know, the, our, my conversation with him, and I'm not going to say the issue because maybe people would get pissed that he, that he stopped it, but there was a, one, one particular issue where, you know, I called him up and I said, this is freaking crazy. Like, people are going to hate this. They're going to hate you for passing it, and this is going to be like, like, like just an anchor that weighs you down, and it's not even meeting the goals of what the advocates are saying. And you know, like a day later, he's like, yeah, this is, this is pretty great. Like, we're not going to do this. This is crazy. I think that is as big of an influence as any council member can have, regardless of, of party. Um, if I had the same conversation with him about safe injection facilities, I'm not saying whether I did or didn't, the answer would have been different. You know? Because he would have gone forward with that anyway, but he's still well, well, he's yeah, listening I mean, he's, he, he, Exactly, he, he, listens. Mm -hmm. he listens. What do you think about um, the positioning of the council vis-a-vis -vis the mayor and the council seeking more independence as has been the storyline since Johnson took over? Obviously right now we think about that in terms of like individual policy issues, but in terms of like separation of powers, structure of government, is it a good thing for the city to have a more empowered council or do you want a strong, a strong mayor? Uh, you know, so depends who the mayor is. Well, no, no, it's not even that. It's it's so we we went through this big hullabaloo in 1989 to to you know grow the size of the council to to give it more power, uh, and then to see the the devolving of those powers over you know two decades or three decades. Um, it's unfortunate. Part of the problem is just institutionally, it's with term limits that you have you know in this case you'll have 30 probably you know because the people leave by by special elections, but say you'll have, at the end of the day, 30, 31, 32 new members uh, coming in in 2021 who, you know, weeks earlier, they were the person I alluded to before, you know, thinking they know something about ferries, but really has never looked in the issue. I mean, that's, you know, on one hand, you want new blood in politics, and, and it's a citizen body. On the other hand, you know, term limits do have uh, ramifications. And when the mayor and the, th the two other citywide elected officials are really the only people with power who've been a, a, a political leader for more than a few years, then it just it, the natural result is, is to be more entrenched and to be more lead-taking, or to, you'll see more lead-taking from the executive. Um, and there's a fear. Like, I mean, council members have a fear because of term limits. Anyone who's saying they're not thinking about what their next job is, is lying to you. And that's just not something that exists in, in the state legislature. To say there's no armchair quarterbacking of who, if, if, if someone so goes here, I'll run for that seat. Obviously, that, that's not what I'm talking about. But there is a real pressure on, you know, most council members have families and mortgages and rent. I mean, they got to, they got to, people have to live. Sure. Um, so all that, 
negatively, now it's, I think it's a good thing that this speaker is, is willing um, to be a little bit more assertive as a branch uh, against the, the mayor. And, and I, I think institutionally that's good, whether it be, it's one of, the, one of the policies I agree with or not. So you obviously, just on that front, you endorsed Nicole Maliotakis, former assembly colleague um, for mayor. You're, you, know, you obviously have a lot of philosophical differences with Mayor de Blasio. Do you see, you know, do you see that the city, you know, you talked about crime, but otherwise, you know, do you see that the city has been taken in the wrong direction? I mean, how do you sort of characterize where you see the policies that have gone through over the last four plus sure. years? So, you know, I'm not one of those people who, um, and again, I mean, I mean, politicians have a tendency to, to say things that end up being full of crap, you know, in, in like five years. But at this point, I'm not, I'm not someone who seeks to just try to get the sensational uh, to, to, to undermine someone's reputation or legacy. You know, I don't see the, the city actually, like, you know, falling down, collapsing. And I ask people who are older about this, uh, and they talk about, like, they, they always compare, um, you know, they said de Blasio was beatable in the same way Dinkins was. And I just, you know, you ask somebody who's in their 50s about 1989, 1990, the highest probably crime year on record, you know, it's just not there. Like, it's just, you know, it's, it's not there. Like, we're not, we're not afraid to walk outside of our, our apartments on a regular basis now. That's the exception, not the norm. Um, I think de Blasio's bigger problem uh, is, is the general direction of the city. Um, you know, I, I think, at, so at, at 40,000 feet, New York City state and local spending is more than double our nearest competitor. Right per capita, we spend eighteen or nineteen thousand dollars per person in state and local dollars. Um, the next nearest competitor, I forget whether it's San Francisco or, or L.A. because one of them doesn't have a county. I think San Francisco is, is also a city and county. But if you look at L.A., L.A. County, and then California, I mean they're considered a ridiculously high spending place, and they're like half of what we spend per capita. It, it's unsustainable, and the evidence that this will be a problem in the future is that if you look at I-80 or 95, and you see all these office parks going up, and you see the companies that were once here moving there, I mean, this is a long-term trend, and, and as things become more digitized, et cetera, I mean, how many companies have a Wall Street address, but their offices are elsewhere? Um, I mean, this is a problem for, you know, probably in my lifetime, um, but not in the immediate future, but I think this is a real problem. Look, there are people, right, you know, I'm sure, in Carthage, who were, you know, playing their harp, singing how Carthage would never fall, right, uh, until Rome conquered. I'm sure there were people in Rome, right, I, mean, I think we have the records, right, from Rome, about how Rome would never fall, right, like, we, we can't be so ignorant to think that, that we are, are just, like, you know, the special city that can never have a problem. Um, and I think that's, that's the real long-term problem for the future that no mayor is ever willing to, to deal with. And, you know, it's... And, it's and just quickly, you mentioned, the, and we want to get to some politics stuff, but um, just quickly, you mentioned the safe injection sites. I mean, is it things like that and things related to more... I mean, you're mentioning sort of fiscal matters just now, but uh, on sort of the, you know, for lack of a better word, the sort of social issues side of things that you also take major issues... I blame you guys. Because I blame I blame a lot of journalists. I mean, a lot of what you do is take talking points. No offense to you guys, but not specifically Please. you guys, but you take talking points from advocate groups, and because they have nice names, they become parroted. Um, so, w w where is the most famous safe injection facility? Right, the first one. 
called uh, no. in Canada? No. Mm, that's the second one. Where's okay. the first one? Don't know. We'll be in Sydney, Australia. Right? There's one in Sydney. Or Sydney has maybe one. One. Right. This year, the Liberal Party in Australia made an issue over safe injection sites. The Liberal Party is the centre-right party in Australia. They fought a battle, a political battle. One of the biggest issues was the Labour Party wanted a safe injection site in Melbourne, and the Liberal Party didn't want to do it. And they just pointed to, you know, it's a big country, but just down the road in Sydney. And they, they saw how bad it was. Um, if you look at Vancouver, Vancouver had its highest amount of overdose deaths ever last year. And yet these are the cities that the advocates are pointing to because their facts aren't wrong. No one has ever died in a safe injection facility. But then you peel back the onion a little more and you see that in Vancouver it's like 5% of, of heroin users actually use a safe injection facility. Then there's some other peer-reviewed studies that indicate maybe these are the people that would be just using needle exchange anyway, you know, that would be taking some precautions. So, I mean, is there, is there a real benefit to the people that are in the facility? 100 percent. Does that, does that outweigh sort of the negative effects that, 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 that are encountered by people who live near this? I don't agree with. Um, we have a methadone clinic in my neighborhood. There's a number of methadone clinics around the city. I, I'm willing to bet, in fact, I'd, I'd put the farm on it, if you ask the precinct commanders of all those precincts where their problem locations are, they'll say near the methadone clinic. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not comparing apples to oranges, but, but I'm comparing the fact that there are some things that are just detriments to the communities they live in. Ruben Diaz Sr. Uh, went, went off on, on Staten Island. Why isn't Staten Island getting a safe injection facility? He's not wrong. I mean, the policy is wrong. He, he's not wrong. I don't want this next to my house. He doesn't want this next to his house. And I feel a bit obligated as a, uh, as a, um, you know, a public servant to not advocate this to be next to my neighbor's houses especially when it's not something that results in, I think, the overall positive for drug programs. We, we have to have recovery centers. I'm happy to tell people to go scratch their ass if they say, I don't want one of these drug counseling programs in my neighborhood. I don't care. I mean, these are things that are, that are good. Right? We, we treat drug addiction as a, ment as, a, as a medical condition now. Those are people that are helping. You know, I see safe injection facilities as, in, in essence, right, if, if we're using the medical analogy, so someone has lung cancer and we're going to set up smoking booths for them. Like, it's not... It doesn't, it doesn't actually help the, the, the underlying problem that heroin is killing them. So we have about five minutes left, so let's get to some politics. Sure. <laughs> Big primary coming up on Staten Island and part of Brooklyn uh, in June, the Michael Grimm Don Don Donovan race. What do you, uh, how do you see that shaping up? Um, <coughs> you know, Grimm has some momentum. Um, Dan hasn't spent any money. Um, you know, so I think, I, think it, I think the narrative will start to change a little bit. It's, if you had to make me guess who's going to win, I would probably, I, I would be shocked. That, I'm shocked to tell you that I can't, I can't predict it. I couldn't see one way or the other. Because you would assume that Donovan would be able to hold on to the seat? I mean, yeah, I mean, you would assume Going in, just in general, you know, the, the law of incumbency, and, and uh, uh, it would be easy. Um, but, you know, some of Donovan's voting record is not in line with what a lot of Republican voters on Staten Island would like. And obviously Grimm has his own legal problems that, that, that have been well publicized and well documented. So you don't exactly have uh, either candidate that is just, you know, causing this groundswell or, or just this tipping of, of the population one way or the other. And then are either of those two guys, um, you know, able to beat the Democrat? Um, and that's, I guess that's to, to be determined. I mean, you know, I think there is, with House races, I think there's going to be a pendulum swing back, back to the left. Um, 
you know, and Staten Island is a, it has always been sort of a, a swing bellwether district, so there's a real chance that it could be lost to a Democrat. Have you t taken a side in the? Oh, I'm, in I'm supporting Donovan. I yeah. thought so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You, didn't, you didn't feel like uh, making that too well known. Oh no, 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 breaking down the race. Yeah, no, not at all. I was, I was just, you know, I, I put my pundit hat on. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Um, so speaking of that, that sort of hits on national trends. Um, why do you think it might not be a great year for Republicans? I mean, is it just a matter of the first? Well, it know, might be a great term? year in the Senate. I mean, you know, the uh, I think Morning Consult had a poll where nine or ten Senate seats that Democrats now held were were underwater. Um, the House races will be different. Um, you know, the, I think the issue for Democrats going forward this year is the the Russian narrative, whether you believe it or not. It's 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 eroding. Um, and if I clicked on CNN right now, they're, they're covering Stormy Daniels or Michael Cohen's taxi medallions or something, and Trump is seeing his highest poll numbers. Um, and I, 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 I'm concluding uh, that a lot of that's to do with, with the sort of apparent overreach of the special prosecutor now, now that he's being rebuffed by not one but two judges. Um, you know, it, it was a big investment on the Democratic Party's side to put a lot of their eggs in the Russia basket, and it's not panning out. And, and now you have Nancy Pelosi, who's also not exactly the most popular person, um, you know, reasserting herself as the leader of the party. But not for that, the Democrats were going to do great. You know, but not for, for those little changes of, of, of narrative. Um, you know, you look at a lot of the toss-up congressional districts, even the ones around New York State, New Jersey, um, Iowa, you know, these are not necessarily districts where the far-left Democratic Party will do well. I mean, Connor Lamb was a, a big win for Democrats, but again, you had a guy who was pretty much pro-gun, pretty much pro-life, pretty much anti-Pelosi, pretty much, uh, you know, as blue-collar, white, working class as you could be. He is not the typecast for Democratic parties in many of these primaries. Um, so that's that's where I see the, the, the fault line going for the midterms, and that's why I don't think it'll be as bad for Republicans in the House, although they'll definitely lose seats. So uh, last question, I think, because we have just a couple minutes left. The state election here, uh, obviously very interesting so far. What do you think it's going to take for Mark Molinaro, assuming he's the Republican nominee officially, to win? Uh, and does Cynthia Nixon uh, help him in that? Oh, you, me, yeah. I mean, she, she definitely helps him. I mean, right now in the uh, latest Quinnipiac poll, had uh, uh, Cuomo under, I think he was pulling 40%. I mean, re recall, he only got 47% or 48% on the Democratic Party line last election. Um, or so, um, Yeah, he got about 50, I think he only got about 47, 48% of the Democratic, well, I have to double check that. Um, excuse me, yeah, listeners, we can, we, listeners, I'm riffing. We don't, so have, yeah, we don't have all the numbers in front yeah. of us, but... Um, so he's under, he's at 40% now. Mark Molinaro hasn't spent a dollar. Cynthia Nixon hasn't spent a dollar. And the, the statewide and even national, uh, you know, narrative around who Andrew Cuomo is, is no longer favorable to him. I mean, he is, he, it's, it's just, he is being exposed as this, you know, petulant child who was born on third and thought he hit a triple. And, and that's who, I mean, he's a person with, with very few principles. Uh, he's a person with uh, very few actual ideological beliefs that are guiding his, his policy. Um, you know, you, you, you've seen him, and I, this is my, my last piece on him for The Hill, was about this. That, that you know, he, he puts on these grand display, and they're all the same, 
these, these big displays of press conferences, and he puts the stupid little message on the podium in front of him. And if you just look back, I mean, the, the message was exactly the opposite two years ago. Like, it was, you know, now it's bag tax protecting the environment. You know, a year ago, literally, it was, now bag tax is crazy. Bags are, bags are crazy. Cra we would never do that, you know. Uh, my favorite was how he, his 2010 campaign, he was going to shake up organized labor. Uh, and now he, he's relying on organized labor to take back the Working Family Party and, and take back those voters. Um, you, know, you can just go down the list with him on, on things that are more show than substance. And, you know, there's just no secrets to it. So he, he talks about capping, his big confidence, capping state spending at 2%. Right. Yeah. It's easy if you just hide money in authorities, and like it's just not like it's. it's yeah, I think uh, the Citizens Budget Commission has shown that it's, it's right. been closer it's just, to it's just three, four, five percent. Um, I did. I did want to ask just one final question. You know, we wanted to get you on lo mostly local stuff, and and you know, give people a chance to hear from one of the three Republicans in the City Council and someone from you know from Staten Island in your district, as we've talked about. Um, and you go on, obviously, uh, Fox and, and other channels all the time to talk about the president and defend him. I will defend, be spending my lunch break him. today <laughs> at, at Headline News and uh, Fox Business. So, and, but for our readers and listeners, you know, on, on local stuff, you know, I did want to ask you just sort of to capture how you, um, how you decide to, you know, support him when obviously, you know, the he, yeah, the president, when, you know, he obviously has had various issues with telling the truth, with, uh, you know, sort of some of his business record with stiffing contractors. I mean, you could sort of go down the list. You know yeah, all the I talking mean, points. I, but I mean, but I, how do you sort of reconcile that? So, because, so, just real quick to finish, you know, someone like Mark Molinaro, who you're supporting for governor, has, you know, said he didn't vote for him. Mm -hmm. He's had issues. But, you know, on some policy stuff, he's definitely there. So how do you sort yeah, of capture I, I, I am certainly not the defender of every single one of, of Donald Trump's tweets. I mean, you know, there are a million things I could point to that I, I would have done differently or recommend that he not do. But, you know, the, the, th think of the question and how you're treating the question about Donald Trump versus how journalists treat the question of Andrew Cuomo, who literally, as I just pointed out, does press conferences that are 180 degrees opposite from the things he once said. Um, I think there's a lot of pretty good coverage of no, I mean, Cuomo. No, there, there, there is, but okay. there's also wall-to-wall. -wall. I mean, again, we don't have, obviously, 24-7 <laughs> news in New York State, mm -hmm. but there is wall-to-wall -wall coverage and outrage over things that Donald Trump says um, when, when he had said one thing and then the other thing has been accurate. Um, and, and that shouldn't be the norm in politics, but it kind of is to some degree because we see a lot of that happening with other executives and we don't also see the, the hyperbolic responses. And, I mean, you largely don't, we've never seen like just this type of question happen where you, you start asking Cuomo supporters about why they would still support Andrew Cuomo despite him not saying the truth. Trump has changed the media so fundamentally that even even like like these interviews have have changed to some degree. Hmm. Interesting. I will, and and I will. to be honest, I'll put I'll put a plug in there for him. You know, the the, the golden-haired god man. Think, <laughs> things aren't bad. Uh -huh. I, mean, I mean, if you if you were confronted with telling anyone like what is really going on bad, and you were limited to not be able to include some type of Trump personal scandal, whether it's Stormy or this or that, or Russia, right? Like, what is fundamentally going bad right now for the United States of America? I think people would have a difficult time to not bring up one of these little scandals. Well, at the at, we're, although <laughs> tempted to, that for to no, that was the last no, word. No, I, no, I, no, no, you get the real word. time. Thank you very much, Council thanks Member Brelli. Uh, yeah. Thanks for having us. Anytime.